Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts. Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel, coming to you today from Sapporo in Japan. Today we'll be talking to Zhen Zhang and Martin Zaxa, who are respectively a research fellow in anthropology and sociology at the University of Queensland in Australia and research group leader of the project Remoteness and Connectivity Highland Asia in the World at Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich, Germany, about their edited volume, The Art of Neighbouring, Making Relations Across China's Borders, which was published last year, 2017, by Amsterdam University Press. And I should add, that it's also available uh, on open access. So uh, get on there and uh, look for it. Now, China, uh, it will come as a surprise to no one to hear, is a growing presence in all of our worlds today. But among all the billions of people worldwide who felt the effects of this country's rise over the past two or three decades, those living directly on China's borders have arguably had the most direct experiences of the changes which this process has brought about. Conversely, Chinese people who live close to neighbouring countries, or indeed cross borders into them, may be seen as vanguards of China-driven transformations unfolding on a vast scale in economics, politics, culture, kinship, and other spheres in Asia and beyond. And of course, they're also recipients of a lot of those transformations. In light of this, Zhen Zhang and Martin Zaxer's edited volume, The Art of Neighbouring, is a timely contribution to our understanding what is going on at many of the points of China's local contact with its 14 neighbouring states. With contributions from anthropologists, geographers and historians drawing on extensive fieldwork all around China's borders with Russia, Laos, Nepal, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Mongolia, Myanmar and Vietnam, this is as comprehensive a volume as we yet have on the extraordinarily diverse Asian neighbourhood which China inhabits and its relationship with it. Yet beyond being a mere survey of differently located answers to questions about what China's rise means for its immediate neighbours, the art of neighbouring is also a theoretical intervention into debates over how states and peoples who live cheek by jowl engage one another. Discussions of how Chinese actors and the Chinese state approach the outside world are of course centuries old, but this fresh and lively collection on this question specifically offers readers a wealth of ways to approach not only this issue, but the broader question and more sort of capacious concept of neighbouring in general. But to talk more about the book and what its diverse contents tell us about the art of neighbouring, I'd like to welcome its two editors, Jen Zhang and Martin Zaxer. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Ed. (laughs) Hello, Ed. Thank you very much for having us here. It's such a pleasure. It's great. It's great to have you, and uh, thank you very much for editing such a fascinating collection. Now, uh, perhaps I could begin by asking each of you uh, what your backgrounds are, how you came to uh, the fields that you are now in, and uh, how you came to focus on China's borders. I suppose, uh, uh, Jen, perhaps you could uh, say something about that first. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, So I came to this topic actually uh, quite by accident because I've never really lived uh, close to the border regions between China and any other sort of countries in in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, But for some reason, I had this fascination about a particular period in China's past. That's the Sino-Vietnamese border war that uh, started from 1979 all the way 
to uh, to the end of 1980s. So that started a fascination with the border areas and its transformations, especially in the post-reform era. So I guess that initiated my research interest into understanding social change in China's border regions, especially between China and Vietnam. And therefore, when I um, pursued my PhD in anthropology, I thought I should you know, go down there to the borderland and have a look and see how things are. So that's mm, sort of mm. my uh, journey into the border area and started thinking about various kinds of issues, including border trade, including sort of the contemporary social relations between Chinese and Vietnamese, um, trafficking and, um, I guess, uh, smuggling and all these very colorful stories that you hear typical of, you know, borderlands anyway. Yeah. Mm. So that's and, and, and had you, uh, had, had you uh, kind of studied things to do with anthropology and borders at all uh, as, a, as an undergraduate? Or ha- a, where did this interest in the Vietnam-China war specifically come from? Uh, not really. Actually, my background was, uh, my undergraduate study was in urban planning. So it's really quite far from either sociology or anthropology. Um, at that time, uh, like any other, I guess, Chinese student, I basically followed what my father wanted and studied urban planning because he thought this would lead to a very good sort of stable career down the track. But then mm. I decided to do my master's in Singapore at the National University of Singapore in sociology in particular mm-hmm. uh, in urban sociology. And that's where I sort of took on a project about um, ethnic boundary making in a multicultural society like Singapore. When I studied migrant wor- workers, how they mark out different public spaces in Singapore and how they maintained the kind of boundary. So not borders per se, but I started to develop an interest in boundary maintenance and boundary making from a more theoretical level. So mm-hmm. when I wanted to do a PhD, uh, incident my advisor for my master's was an anthropologist so he successfully sort of lured me over into anthropology <laughs> then I decided to do a PhD in anthropology uh, with Paniri at that time um, um, at Macquarie University in, in Sydney Australia uh, so uh, well I really wanted to focus the study on China but not um, on China but not on China in the sense that not sort of on the minorities, not on sort of urban issues, not on the, 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 the hot topics at that time. And border issues remain sort of a relatively understudied area. And I really uh, wanted to do something that um, I guess not a lot of people have studied at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's also a personal interest on in border issues because my dad was a veteran soldier. Um, he did not participate in the in the border war uh, between China and Vietnam, but in other sort of um, uh, conflicts back in the 1960s. So he basically followed the event uh, when I was growing up. I listened about what's happening and thought about, you know, what would happen if, you know, my dad was enlisted and I had to had to go to the battlefield and things like that. So I guess it has always remained sort of a topic of interest in my mind. Yeah. Wow, yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's fascinating. And yeah, very understandable then that uh, you would want to bring this uh, to uh, to the fore really in, in this volume. Um, Martin, how about you? How, perhaps you could say something about your own uh, academic background, uh, how you became interested in, in the subject that uh, you've continued to work on uh, to this day. And uh, perhaps also you could fill us in on, on how the project uh, of, of or this uh, book, The Art of Papering, came about. 
Yes, I was I was doing a PhD in Tibet on a completely different topic. Actually, I was working on the the industry of Tibetan medicine or the creation of an industry in Tibetan for Tibetan pharmaceuticals. Uh, and while I was doing this, I I, I started uh, looking into plant trade because. Tibetan medicine as an herbal-based medicine is a thing that is heavily dependent on things that actually don't grow on the Tibetan plateau. About 80% in volume of the of the raw materials um, used in Tibetan medicine, they are actually imported from, from other places, mainly from South Asia. So I was looking into these into these cross-border trade networks uh, for medicinal plants, and I realized that actually quite contrary to the the assumption me and many other people people had at that time, namely that trans Himalayan trade was a, a thing of the past, I realized that actually there was a lot going on, not just along the main arteries of trade or the official road that connect, connects uh, Kathmandu and Lhasa, the, the friendship highway, but actually along all these other little border crossings that that I had I thought were had actually fell in decline over the past 30 40 years mm. so looking into this um I started I started becoming more and more interested in in, in this question of of um of borders and cross-border trade and I realized that there was well these were the times this was maybe 2010 2011 and i realized that there was china was everywhere in the news but everybody was always talking about like china and the world and and and, and these big geopolitical um rifts that were ongoing but but nobody was really looking into what this what this rise of china whatever it means actually means for the people living directly along the borders so mm. i I started working on a postdoc project uh, entitled Neighboring China. And um, with this, I went to the Asia Research Institute in Singapore as a, as a postdoc in, in Prasenji Duara's inter-Asia cluster. And there in, in Singapore, in this, uh, the Asia Research Institute, Ari, was at that time still in the botanical gardens in this tower block, this this ugly tower in the middle of the botanical gardens, which was actually a laboratory building. And I was I was um, given an office space in the eighth or ninth floor, uh, in a windowless office, and there I met Juan. So we became office office colleagues. <laughs> and there in this box in, in the in the ninth floor of the tower building in, in, in Singapore, actually right away we saw that we had many, many shared interests and and um, and we decided to do a, a workshop together on this topic, on on neighboring China. Mm-hmm. Which we then did in two thousand twelve and that was the the initial that was the seed that later became this volume. I see. I see. So the, the the participants at the initial workshop were also the contributors to the volumes, correct? More or less, yes. With uh, some some changes. I see. Um, and I guess uh, I'm always curious uh, before we move on to the kind of content of the of the book. Um, practically speaking, uh, we're co-editing something. Uh, how did the two of you divide the labour between? Uh, the various parts of the book that need put it together, the writing, the introduction, the actual editing of the, of the contribution. So, Jen, what what, uh, what what shape did that process take uh, as you as you were actually coming to put the put the book uh, into to put it together? Oh wow! Uh, actually, I don't quite remember now how it got together <laughs> because right after. So this is sort of the format of a lot of the um, ARI, the Asia Research Institute. Um, I guess 
workshop formulas that uh, uh, by the time when we had the workshop, all the participants should already have a written paper. So based on that, we uh, literally already had a full set of first drafts so that we can then, um, I guess, put them in different sections and see how certain thematic um, threads could emerge. And that's how we think that perhaps an edited volume would work. So um, then, since we're, we shared the same windowless office on the ninth floor at Ari's Tower Blog, so there's nothing much to do, but we had lots of time discussing, you know, how we can proceed with the book project. And yeah, so as far as I can remember, it was um, quite natural that we basically talked about teach papers, thought about the overall structures, and then uh, come up with drafts, and then we just basically exchanged um, by email or when we talked about um, the project um, altogether. So, yeah, I think um, it took a long time, but um, overall, I think it was quite a smooth collaborative process. Martin, am I yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was wonderful working with you, Joanne. <laughs> it was really one of the very nice, very good experiences of doing this with somebody. We somehow we somehow found a, diff, a, a similar language right from the start. It became more difficult then in the end when we had both left Singapore. So then it was less of this informal day-to-day -day conversation. Then it was really about tying it down and bringing it to an end, um, which was a more complicated. Uh, but overall, I, I I still remember this as a as a wonderful and a very very creative process actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's certainly the case that that's not that's not, not always uh, a positive uh, relationship that people find when when working together on on things in in academia. So I'm very pleased to hear that uh, it was uh, it was so smooth, and I and I think that comes out very clearly in the in in the book the way that the. Uh, the narrative uh, flows and, and the structure of it. Um, you're absolutely right, Martin. That there's a consistency to the to the language and to the approach, um, which uh, which makes it really hang together very well, despite the, the real uh, richness of the diversity of the contributions. Um, so perhaps we could uh, actually jump right into the, the content of the book uh, at this point. Um, you begin by sort of setting the scene and, and really uh, doing a lot of the kind of uh, theoretical introduction uh, in in the introduction, uh, surprisingly enough, um, which is entitled Neighbouring in the Border Worlds Along China's Frontiers. Um, and as uh, both of you have uh, sort of alluded to in your initial remarks there, um, this, this collection and, and this, uh, this, this uh, group of, of, of scholars that you've brought together here do, some, do, do, do something quite, uh, quite new in bringing China's diverse borderlands into dialogue. Um, but it is also the case that really... Uh, when you're coming from uh, the Siberian borderlands of northeast or, or northern China uh, down to the Himalayas or, or Southeast Asia, um, that you're still dealing with a really vast range of, of different situations. Um, so perhaps uh, I could ask uh, one or other of you, uh, Jen, why don't, why don't you say something about what kind of different situations we are, are we dealing with here? I mentioned some of the countries there in the introduction, but could you just say something about all of the not all, but a selection of the different locations that, that, that feature in the different chapters of the book. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's a very good question. Actually, I think at the beginning when we started to conceptualize this project, we had a bit of, um, I guess, trouble uh, in terms of finding that common analytical, um, I guess, 
framework that could tie these different places and this different, um, I hesitate to say case studies, but more like different kinds of ethnographic examples. How can we analytically bring them together and for them to still seem like a very coherent um, set of, uh, you know, studies about uh, the topic um, what China means to many of these neighboring countries and people live directly along the, the national borders. Um, so um, I think eventually we think neighboring can be that um, analytical concept that uh, many of these chapters can engage. Um, of course, our initial uh, sort of departure point is also to uh, challenge the notion that um, because China... so. When we were when we were starting with this project, uh, there's always sort of very I guess there's a lot of geographical kind of um, um, restraints on you know how we think about China's relations with its borders. When we talk about China and Southeast Southeast Asia, it's always China as the domineering kind of figure, whereas Southeast Asia is the smaller neighbors, smaller brothers. Whereas when we talk about China and Russia, it's completely a different politics when we're thinking about these kind of relationships. So we were trying to look for that a common language to bring these different things together to, to think about similarities rather than uh, differences. At the same time, we were trying to challenge that notion that it's either conflict or sort of friendship, harmony, this sort of very bifurcated construction about how China manages uh, very diverse relations with its neighbors. So um, we were trying very much to capture that intimate relation, yet there are lots of conflict going on. So it's a, a very dynamic process at the same time full of contradictories. So this is, I guess, uh, the, the core theme that helps us to conceptualize how we can bring these very different cases together and different uh, diverse locations together in this collective volume. Yeah, so that's mm. my, yeah what I can remember right now, sort of the, 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 the <laughs> thinking behind this project. Yeah. Sure, sure. No, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And it has certain sorts of theoretical implications, this idea of neighboring, I suppose, for the figure of the neighbor who who the neighbor is uh, or who, who is the neighbor um in, in, in our kind of anthropological or political or, or sociological uh, imagination. Um Martin, what kind of uh, within this idea of neighboring, uh yeah, who is the neighbor? That's not too uh, bizarre and abstract a question. Well, the neighbor is the one who is neighboring. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is probably what we realized very early on, that we wouldn't take neighboring as some sort of pre-given geographical condition, but rather as as verb, as active process, and maybe as a category of human relations also, a category that hasn't received the attention it deserves, we, we, we believe. I mean, isn't it interesting? You have a lot of literature on things like kinship or ethnicity or nationhood, which are very clearly like the strong forces um, of, of, of human relations that shape a lot of what we do and dream about and, 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 and how we see the world. But neighboring is sort of a thing that always only comes to the forefront once there is trouble. Yeah. Once good neighbors start fighting with each other. Um, but neighboring is is an interesting thing because it's it's not been looked at as a category of human relations in sociology or in in, in anthropology, and our idea was to do a, a very initial, very first step towards a, a larger conceptualization of, of of neighboring, or maybe rather to make this 
to make use of this, to make this work for the purpose of our volume, because the the, the process of neighboring as a, as a verb, as a, as a, as an activity, is uh, is something that really unites all the all the papers in this in this volume. Mm-hmm. And and what about I mean to, to return to that sort of fundamental idea that that uh, I guess uh, statement of the neighbor is the the one who is neighboring. I mean. Uh, when it comes to questions of distance, for example, um, what uh, is that? Is that the key uh, operating uh, category here? Is, is proximity the main the main constraint or the main de- defining characteristic, or is there a, is there a lot of other things going on? Can I answer this, Joan? Yeah, of course. Yeah, please, Martin. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yes, of course, proximity in one or the other kind uh, is probably always a precondition for any any form of of, of neighboring. Yeah, um, but it, it's not a, it's not the kind of proximity that can be measured in in kilometers or miles or in hours walked. We very soon realized that actually there are there are very different kinds of of, of processes of neighboring going on in in all these areas. We this book is concerned with. Um, I mean, there is one situation which you find in many places along China's borders where you have one particular group or ethnic group that lives on both sides of of the Chinese border. Yeah, so you have a you basically have uh, you have neighboring within a particular group, but across national borders. But then you also have um, have other contexts where you have different groups living in the borderlands basically mm-hmm. a neighboring between different groups but within the boundaries of nation of national territory mm-hmm. or you have like both like in in, in Joan's case you have you have different groups and 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 a, a relation that crosses international borders mm-hmm. um, so yes proximity is important but it, it we we wouldn't want to we didn't want to sort of use neighboring as the overarching big big conceptual lens through which everything can be explained it's more like it's more like one of these mid-level concepts that help you put things in relation i think yeah that 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 makes a lot of sense as as a kind of uh, as an optic through which to examine this this diversity of different situations um and then i guess finally sort of from this introductory uh part um of course, the, the the other thing that unites uh, countries and the, the neighbouring uh, situations that we're dealing with is, again, this is blatantly obvious, but China is is there uh, at, at the centre of it all. Um, and uh, you touch in the introduction on some older ideas, classical ideas about China's relationship with the world that surrounds it. Of course, there's the sort of tired old idea of, of or at least the the often misinterpreted old idea of what being this middle kingdom, this mm. Dongguo, means. Um, and uh, a lot of ideas as well discussed about how China interacts and has historically interacted with surrounding powers uh, through ideas of high role, this idea of uh, things like cherishing people, from, uh, cherishing uh, strangers from afar and so on. Um, Jen, could you say something about how the, your idea of neighbouring and how the book brings together uh, ideas about China's relationship with the outside world from a sort of China folks perspective. 
Yeah, so, uh, well, when we started to thinking about, actually, this is also a point of debate when we conceptualize uh, this project, because uh, immediately, of course, China is always the buzzword and the center of, you know, attention at that time. And we were thinking, can we put China in, in, in such a place that, uh, well, it is uh, obvious presence, but then um, its relation is not sort of determined by, you know, being the buzzword, being sort of the, 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 the attraction point where people just want to understand what is China doing, what China has, what China means to, to, to other people. We want to sort of turn this analytical, analytical lens around to understand, um, underground how people understand it beyond these official rhetorics, beyond news headlines and beyond these sensational reports about, you know, China's economic takeoff and all of these, um, other processes that are, that are going on. So in that sense, I think we're trying very hard to separate ourselves from the classical sort of Sino-centered um, studies on China's relations with um, other countries. Uh, this is sort of very typical in the classic studies of, um, I guess, um, what's the word, tributary systems, China's engagement with Southeast Asia and other Asian countries in the sense that China being the cultural center and being the sort of China, uh, economic and political centers in this region. Um, so what we also want to do is perhaps take a perspective from um, James Scott's work on the art of not being governed to sort of bring that ethnographic understanding of the everyday details that are actually happening about the strategies that people use in terms of how they actually define China's presence, how they try to both take advantage of China's rise at the same time, they try to maintain certain distance. So in that very dynamic uh, balancing act, we see neighboring takes place because neighboring precisely is about maintaining certain closeness um, to, I guess, make the best use of resources, make the best use of whatever opportunities that's out there, but at the same time to maintain that critical distance so that, uh, you know, the self and the other can always be differentiated in certain ways. Yeah. Mm. And that makes a huge amount of sense uh, when one considers that this work, this, this book is based on lots of cases of really deep uh, ethnographic involvement in these various borderland situations. I suppose it's the case that a lot of these classic ideas of China-Sinocentric views, as you say, about tributary relations and so on, are written from a certain level of elevation or indeed a historical distance that uh, makes that kind of conclusion uh, seem uh, seem a strong one to, to arrive at. Whereas when you've got a rich array of very local, very nuanced uh, situations, in all kinds of different locations around the border, I guess some of these larger, broad brushstroke type uh, 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 conceits are a bit more difficult to arrive at, um, and, and we're much better treating the situation, as you mentioned uh, earlier, Martin, uh, the, the, through this uh, sort of, as you say, mid-level concept of, of, of neighbouring or, 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 or something like this. Um, so that's brilliant. Um, we could perhaps then jump into the first section uh, of the book, which consists of three chapters. Uh, the title of the section is Border Worlds, um, and we're dealing here with uh, situations on uh, the Sino-Russian border, that's uh, Fong Pillet, uh, who was at that chapter, uh, one on the Sino-Laotian Laotian border by Pao Niri, uh, who you mentioned earlier, Jen. Um, and then Martin, 
since you have a chapter in this book, uh, in this uh, section, I should say, on the China-Nepal border, perhaps you'd like to say something about about this section and specifically about some of the, uh, the the border worlds, how we conceive of these border border lands or border worlds as worlds, what kind of symmetries and asymmetries are, are evident there, uh, and, and uh, yes, how, how, how you see it from the point of view of your own work uh, there on the China-Nepal border. Yeah, well, first, I mean, it is important to note that the research that went into this book clearly predates um, much of what is going on now. I mean, this is a pre a pre Belt and Road Initiative book, ethnographically. Even if it came out in, in 2017, uh, that the workshop we held was 2012. So it was a it was still a year, a few years before Xi Jinping announced the Belt and Road Initiative in in Kazakhstan in 2014. Um, so, in many ways, these were times where where kind of China was very clearly opening its borders and looking to sort of uh, foster trade and foster relations after a phase of closure that uh, clearly had had shaped lives along the borders between maybe the 1960s and the and and the early 2000s. So it was this window of opportunity where you had lots and lots of things going on uh, in, in terms of trade, in terms of small scale trade, in terms of um, of investment projects, in terms of um, in terms of embedding this neighboring situation in, in, in the daily lives of people on both sides of the borders. Uh, in the meantime, much of this has actually changed. And sometimes I think that what, what I mean, you mentioned James Scott's book before, The, the Art of Not Being Governed and the, and the idea of Zomia. I mean, his, his book very clearly refers to, to, to a, uh, a phase in history pre-World War II. And then he basically says that, that um, after World War II, through the, the forces of time, Time, space compression, and infrastructure, and telecommunication—that—that that this that this refuge that afforded anarchist ways of, of living in, in 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 the in the mountains of, of Southeast Asia actually vanished. And sometimes I think that only now, with uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative and this huge huge investment that goes into into the construction of new roads and railways, that actually happens. So in in at that time, around like 2010, 11, 12, when most of the work research-wise that, en- that then went into this book was actually carried out, this was not yet the case. Mm. Um, so, so roads, I mean, the, the, the one belt, one road, it's in the, it's in the name, the roads, um, but roads are a, a clear motif and a, a central point of, of your, own, your own chapter in here. Um, and I suppose... With, with it, notwithstanding the, the radical changes and the infrastructural uh, developments uh, that have really accelerated since, actually a certain amount of infrastructural development is key to, to key background to, to, to your own uh, ethnography, uh, albeit a few years ago. Um, what kind of processes were being sort of uh, generated, reawoken uh, by, by road construction in the Sino-Nepal, Nepalese uh, borderlands at the time when you were doing your research? It was a time where China built a lot of roads on the Tibetan Plateau, and suddenly many of the valleys of northern Nepal found themselves in this particular situation. Namely, they had suddenly road access to the north, to the Tibetan Plateau, while still having no roads that would connect them to the the urban centers of Nepal. That triggered a a radical reorientation uh, towards the north, towards Tibet, 
uh, in these years. And you saw like the, the emergence of this old Himalayan institution of the of the seasonal trade mart of the of the Antipo, um popping up in in several places. Uh, it was a, a very dynamic time, and and there was this veritable quest to extend the road the roads that reached the border from the north down into the valleys of Nepal in order to make better use of this new of this new access to um, to, to to goods and business opportunities. Uh, in the meantime, that has changed. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I mean, this is this has been going on, and, and there are even more roads, and roads have been extended, and many of the roads I talk about, they are now complete and they are used. But it also attracted a, a huge amount of scrutiny by by the state on on both sides, and that niche that that existed in like 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, where you had lots and lots of business opportunity opportunities for the for the for the small for the small trader yeah for the classical broker a role that many himalayan populations um, have a long history of that role suddenly became more difficult because of new border mm. regimes because of more scrutiny by the state mm-hmm. interesting yeah i think uh, this is a in a sense just an illustration of this constantly dynamic situation there in the borders and also how sensitive these borderlands uh, locations are to shifts in in national policy or in uh, in regional uh, kind of priorities and, and economic developments and so on um, and uh, and I think uh, all of that emerges when we're looking at uh, a situation like Nepal and, and and the Tibetan border there which you highlight uh, actually uh, shows some signs of almost oscillating between periods when trade and and, and borderlands uh, border crossing was particularly vigorous and then more a period of closure and then a particular Potentially a period of renewed opening, uh, as uh, as you document there. Um, but perhaps I'll move now on to on to section two, where I suppose actually some of these questions of grand scale state uh, state interaction uh, and and, and uh, kind of grand initiatives and things come more into play to an extent because this section is concerned with uh, neighbouring beyond proximity, as it's called, and uh, we zoom out to a to a certain extent or at the very least deal with neighbouring situations which are not intimately, immediately across uh, across borderlines uh, on the ground, perhaps. Um, there are chapters in this section by Henrik Alf on uh, Xinjiang, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, cross-border relations there, a chapter uh, by Uradin Bula uh, on uh, Mongolia and its relationship with neighbours, uh, both Russia, China and beyond. Um, and finally, a chapter by Tina Harris, also on, on, on the Himalayan borderlands, uh, Another, another location there. Um, Jen, uh, it seems to me in this section, as I say, there's a certain zooming out here, uh, which I think makes this concept of neighbouring, uh, in a sense, theoretically richer, because we're not dealing necessarily with situations of immediate uh, confrontation. Um, perhaps you could say something a little more about how this kind of elevating the perspective um, aids us in understanding what's going on around China's borders and, and, and in neighbouring practices with, with China involved. Yeah, sure. Uh, just returning to a point that Martin made earlier, that the neighbour is who is neighbouring. So I think in this case, we're trying to say that the neighbour who is, you know, someone who wants to be a neighbour. So, so in that sense, physical distance does not matter if someone really wants to become a neighbor, for example, to China or to 
perhaps a Southeast Asian country, if there's strategic, I guess, collaborations can be built or opportunities can be found together towards a common goal. So that's sort of our starting point to think about proximity is really important. But in this very dynamic relation, relationship we call neighboring, um, proximity, uh, it doesn't mean, you know, in a physical sense, doesn't necessarily mean distance. Um, relationship can still happen um, regardless um, if you are staying physically together. So in this sense, um, certain ethnic groups or, um, you know, people, traders who are very used to being mobile and travel long distances are very keen at finding pockets of connections, finding that common ties that they can claim some sense of closeness to perhaps a particular group in China or a particular kind of uh, community or, you know, uh, politics that are happening in China um, that... Uh, so that certain strategic relationships can be built or connections can be reclaimed, um, then they can perhaps achieve, um, I guess, better economic outcomes for their activities or perhaps find um, new destinations along their trades mm. or along their sort of strategic planning for, I guess, international politics in the case of uh, Bullock's chapter. I think that chapter strikes mm. me as really interesting because he really talks about Mongolia's um, politics claiming, um, I guess, the US and Japan as its neighbors, even though it's not even, I guess, physically connected to these countries, whereas Je uh, Russia and China as its immediate neighbors had to balance this external politics between other countries that are uh, putting influence in the region that shows sort of the kind of neighboring politics that are just beyond physical boundaries, but also in terms of the very symbolic um, negotiations between um, states and also between, I guess, individuals um, who are involved in these kinds of politics. So that's my mm. thinking about, um, you know, the politics of proximity and how neighboring can take advantage of very close proximity at the same time, claim some sort of fictive kinship or fictive friendship across longer time and distance, just so that some kind of um, new connections can be made. Right, right. No, absolutely. I think actually, funnily enough, I remember hearing Bulak say at one point that uh, China uh, it's China's attempts almost too vigorously to neighbor with Mongolia, ready to try and be too good friends that, right. uh, that puts uh, Mongolia off sometimes <laughs> and it makes, yeah. it makes it go on looking for, for alternative uh, partners. Um, Martin, do you have anything to add on, on, on the benefits of this kind of more, more elevated uh, perspective? And, and you, you brought up the Belt and Road uh, thing, clearly Central Asia, Mongolia, uh, these are regions that are very clearly affected by these new policies. Um, yeah, do, do you have anything to, to add on in this regard? Yes, I mean in both chapters with uh, with Hendrik Alf and 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 Uradin Bulak, um, there is a kind of neighboring going on that is based on proximity. I mean, Henry Galf traces that story of bazaar trade uh, uh, in, in Dardoi Bazaar in, in, uh, in, um, in Bishkek, which used to be one of the biggest bazaars in, in, uh, in, in Central Asia. Um, and you have this neighboring relation between, between Kyrgyzstan and, and, uh, and China, actually, um, like, like transposed into that context of that little bazaar where you have a lot of proximity um so it is it finds sort of ways 
it, it, it finds sort of a, a space in which this proximity is recreated, even if, even if, um, if the places that, uh, if, even if the places are far away from each other. And in Uradin Bulak's case, it's very interesting. He has this funny story of the gift horse. Yeah, I mean that's how how Mongolian uh, diplomacy works. You 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 give a, a, a foreign dignitary a, a, a gift horse, uh, which uh, which is supposed to stay in Mongolia and 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 thrive on the green pastures of of Mongolia. So you re, you create sort of that that spatially fixed neighboring sort uh, neighboring sort of, of of relationship through through this gift horse thing. And then uh, and then there's a lot of misunderstandings. I mean Bush gets it funny enough, and he doesn't take the horse back home. He comes and checks on it. And uh, mm. but <laughs> but then Hu Jintao actually didn't get it, and he took the horse back home. And uh, that wasn't really liked by by the Mongolians. It wasn't meant to be. So th- there is a, a, an element of, of geographical proximity transposed into a different context that still is at work, even if neighboring sort of, even if we are zooming out, and even if we don't have a, t- a situation of a, a border and two groups on each side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, well, in that sense, that makes this uh, notion of neighboring quite useful to thinking beyond anthropology, too, and into the world of politics and uh, and, and international relations and the like. Um, so, yeah, that's that, that's great. And uh, I think um, certainly for all his other catastrophic errors, Bush was probably wise <laughs> not to take the horse home with him. It's a bit of a, an inconvenient gift. Maybe uh, he had very good advices, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I would think so. I, I would surprised if his Mongolian cultural sensitivity was uh, was, was particularly high. Um, but uh, it, perhaps uh, moving on to more sort of uh, perhaps contentious uh, waters here in, in section three, which is entitled Agonistic Intensities, um, and, and really after, I suppose, a, a moment of respite at, at a higher level of elevation in section two, we've zoomed back in again on some on some very local situations. Um, there are four four chapters in this this final section of the book um, on Trans Himalayan or, or, and Tibetan uh, uh, borderlands uh, by Chris Basak uh, Kumar um, on uh, the uh, Burma Yunnan borderlands by uh, Rono Igoto and uh, Jen your chapter on Sino-Vietnamese border and then finally uh, a, a more I, I would say a, a sort of complementary uh, chapter. From uh, Magnus Fischgesio uh, on China's animal neighbors beyond human. Look at this notion of neighboring. Um, Jen, since you have a since you have your chapter uh, in this section, uh, perhaps you'd like to say something about uh, the kind of slightly more uh, tense relations or the tensions, productive tensions potentially, but also of course uh, also potentially damaging tensions which emerge uh, in these borderlands and and what this notion of agonistic intensities, which actually appeared initially in the introduction uh, means and what it, what it does for you here discussing uh, your Sino-Vietnamese case and other cases. Yeah, right. So I think this uh, agonistic intensities uh, basically describe the kind of very, uh, I guess, paradoxical relations between neighbors. On one hand, you try to at least maintain some sort of surface level friendliness or intimacy so that um, everyday functions or uh, well, collaborations can resume as normal. Um, on the other hand, we can really see deeper levels of distrust, perhaps a historical continuation of certain suspicion and cer- certain, I guess, well, you co- maybe this can be called jealousy or this can be called various forms of distrust or conflict that at, at the border that 
has to be maintained, but at the same time, it cannot be so serious to challenge the kind of peaceful talks, the kind of friendly gestures and all of that. So we just want to find a, a concept to capture this kind of ambivalent state of emotions and state of, I guess, um, a relationship making um, at the actual borderland. So in these chapters, mm-hmm. we're uh, looking at sort of the daily struggles and then the kind of daily negotiation strategies uh, that many of these uh, people who live directly um, off the border sort of communities, um, how they experience this and how they basically um, do various kinds of things. But at the same time, their, I guess, thinking process can be quite different from what they do. And a lot of the contradictions and a lot, lot of the ironies that happen um, because this is all done under the very large umbrella of, you know, friend, friendly uh, neighborliness that um, China has to build its relation with its neighbors um, towards, I guess, economic prosperity and development and so on and so forth. But at the local level, you see more of the everyday conflicts, more of these uh, discontent and struggles that are not necessarily serious, but damaging enough to cause discomfort at the local level. So we want to see, you know, how that kind of experience changed the ways in which people understand uh, what it means to be living so close to China. And also, I think another important thing to note when we're thinking about this is what kind of China they're experiencing. Because this is not the China that many would read about in the news reports, in media headlines about this very powerful, very affluent sort of uh, monstrous nation that are just right there. They are dealing with very concrete, you know, just small traders like themselves. They're dealing with, I guess, uh, peasants, migrants, um, officials who may be corrupt, sometimes who may be powerless as themselves. So these are the little pieces of China that they experience on a daily basis that can be very different from a lot of the larger pictures of what China is like. Um, so mm-hmm. for us, this can be a very interesting sort of angle to think about this everyday relationship making. Uh, just the final um, words about, oh, sorry, yeah? Yeah, well, I was just going to ask about some specific cases of, of these dynamics that you're describing kind of in your in your ethnography there of the of the Sino-Vietnamese border trade and what, what kind of, uh, I guess, situations brought you to, to, to these ideas and, and, and allowed you to see these these uh, ambivalences or these sort of um, paradoxes really of borderland life what, what was the situation you were describing there uh, on the China Vietnam border yeah right so uh, very briefly so from what I uh, when I did my research at that time that was sort of before um, a very open um, conflict about South China Sea about this sort of oil platform kind of um, uh, uh, controversies that are happening in recent years, um, there was um, very little, um, there was a lot of dispute about South China Sea sovereignty issues and so on and so forth. But at that particular borderland, everybody sort of avoided these kind of political talks and just focused on doing business and make their, um, you know, um, uh, basically make money and expand into um, bigger market shares in whatever trade that they're doing. So there's real focus on very contemporary, very sort of um, uh, money-driven, I guess, uh, intentions behind their everyday interactions. So trade fair, that's the main focus of that chapter, um, is 
you know, a, a local initiative, I guess, a government initiative that helped to facilitate a lot of these, um, I guess, trade um, activities happening at the border. It's a flagship event. Um, but when it happened, then the Chinese um, traders realized that if, say, some small um, procedures change and some um, little things like um, tariff of certain goods were changed overnight without notification, and then they are powerless to actually exercise that symbolic might that China may have. So in that sense, they come to the border as Chinese traders who bring money and who bring a lot of the commodities that the Vietnamese need. But uh, if local conflict takes place or some sort of agreement has not been reached, they cannot you know, just exercise that symbolic power that China has. For them, they are just powerless individuals, traders who cannot really do much to improve their situations. So, mm, yeah, so what they can do basically is just to make small arrangements to do damage control and to really try to make uh, less official kind of negotiations with their Vietnamese counterparts. And for the Vietnamese mm -hmm. traders, it's the same. There is some sort of disconnect between the official rhetorics and between the local uh, government's activities or plans and also what the traders really need and what they really want. So um, all of these things happen at the same time to generate various kinds of conflicts, priorities, and I guess, um, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, well, the struggles, I don't know, but uh, yeah, in, in, yeah. in that sense, well, eventually, um, you know, some business uh, can continue if they just, you know, do it in various kinds of circuitous ways. Otherwise, you will have mm -hmm. to go back to, you know, go back to China or go back to Vietnam when right. such relationships right. continue. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and you mentioned some quite actually surprising instances there of, of Chinese uh, truckers and, and, and traders protesting against unforeseen uh, shifts in regulations and things. It's not a, it's not a story you hear a great deal about. Yeah, um, no. Sort of yeah, so so this this kind of things then all get silenced because you never hear about conflicts in media reports about trade fair success. That's not really the kind of headline that you want to you know generate. You still want people to think that trade goes on as usual. People are making money. They're living happily ever after as neighbors. But this kind of you know concrete conflicts that can really change people's lives. They lose money, then they you know feel very unhappy about. Uh, but it doesn't really matter under the sort of the larger discourse about China's peaceful, you know, relationship with its neighbors. So that mm -hmm. just captures an episode, yeah, and that happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's very valuable. It, that's the value, really, that uh, this very localized borderland perspective brings to it because, as you say, on the, on the macro level and in the, the certain official media reports, uh, actually, not only in China, you, you hear about uh, everything being rosy and, and they're quite... Uh, learn so much about these these localized uh, antagonisms or antagonistic intensities. Um, lots of what comes out in that chapter, actually, in the section as a whole, are ideas of in betweenness, of ambivalence, as you mentioned, Jen, uh, that are present throughout the book. Um, and Martin, if I could just turn back to you um, as we come towards the end, um, these ideas of in betweenness are, are, are key in your. Uh, your chapter and, and as I mentioned throughout um, and I just wonder kind of looking forward or actually looking to the contemporary situations so they were still working in this sphere um, is the grand strategy the real push right out to the borders uh, that we might see being a part of the uh, Belt and Road initiative is this 
reducing the extent to which borderlands around China are kind of in-between spaces, ambivalent spaces? Um, do, do you see any kind of shift in, uh, in, in this condition that may, maybe draws together a lot of the borderlands that appear in this book? Yes and no. This is really, uh, this is really, it really depends on which place you are looking at. I think. I mean, on the one hand, there is a almost everything is now Belt and Road. Yeah, whatever development initiative came under a different name is now is now part of the Belt and Road, of the Belt and Road uh, program. And um, and they are like in um, uh, like along the along the, the Myanmar Yunnan border, for example. There are many many new border posts built that sort of try to to reopen trade routes that were important before and there this still plays but on a bigger scale and other places like in uh, in, in tibet and xinjiang what you see is that in many places the the regardless of all the current trouble that in many places actually the border posts moved back from the Chinese border 100 kilometers inland and then you create this this new kind of border zone and in in limbo where you have entered Chinese territory but you've you've you're not yet stamped in uh, which is an altogether different kind of of a of of in-betweenness created through this through this shift in, in in the ways in which China is is policing its borders, so I wouldn't mm. be able to kind of uh, give you a, a, a general answer to it, but to to this, but there is a lot going on at the moment, mm. and the asymmetries, no, the asymmetries, they are they are they are really striking. I mean the the amount of money and effort invested into in border infrastructure and in in surveillance infrastructure on the Chinese side uh, has has no counterpart uh, in in all the all the countries just around it no that's right and it would be worth mentioning of course at this point the really grievous and devastating situation in, in Xinjiang at the moment with hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs uh, imprisoned or uh, forced into uh, re-education camps uh, which uh, I would encourage listeners to do some research on because it's uh, necessary knowledge uh, about contemporary China um, well, to close out, uh, Joan and Martin, thank you so much. Uh, we've taken up quite a bit of your time, uh, and uh, I think you've done a, done a great job of, uh, of, of giving us a feel for this for this fascinating book, uh, despite its, uh, you know, as you say, the kind of long process uh, during which it was it was produced. Um, before we close out completely, perhaps I could just ask our traditional final question, uh, namely, what is it that each of you is up to at the moment? Uh, Jen, perhaps you'd like to go first. Yeah, sure. So uh, when I was doing my project, basically uh, my PhD project at the border, I started to get in contact with a lot of the Chinese gamblers uh, who, of course, uh, because gambling is illegal in China, they have to cross the border into a lot of the borderland casinos to gamble. So then that started uh, quite an interesting sort of pet project about borderland casinos. And then that led to larger project about Asian casinos that are suddenly mushrooming across various kinds of Developing Asian countries, uh, such as Vietnam, Philippines, Cambodia, and of course the casino destinations of Singapore and Macau. So, um, so for me, Asian casinos became a new interest to understand how suddenly this transnational capital um, all flooded into Asia, investing in gambling as an industry, and how that changes the kind of new social dynamics across the nation. With gamblers mainly come from China, so that's my new interest mm. at the moment. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic! Oh, that sounds uh, that sounds great and very uh, yeah very yeah, very exciting. Japan to, is but, the next on the list, right? It's recently passed the bill to open casinos, so let's see what's happening there. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there you go. That's uh, that's a new potential field site for you right there. <laughs> nice. um, Martin, how, how how about you? Uh, I, I mentioned the research project you're involved in at the head of the interview. Um, could you tell us a little more about that and some whatever projects you have going on currently? Yes. After I left Singapore, I extended this interest in neighbouring China to to Central Asia. Uh, so I was uh, doing quite a bit of research in uh, in in Tajikistan in the Pamirs, and um, and currently I'm I'm uh, I'm on on different on on, the, on three different projects. I'm on one thing that I do is I I write my second book on basically on on this remoteness and connectivity issue. It's called Place Knots, and that is still the Himalaya book that comes out mm-hmm. of. Um, of these this decade of, of of research on the on the Himalayas, but I'm also working on a documentary film uh, on Murgap, which is this place in the Pamirs that used to be the Soviet Union's highest town. Um, uh, a documentary film that will come out in spring, hopefully. Um, and the third project we're working on is an exhibition, an exhibition on stuff from the highlands of Asia. We actually launched a call for stuff um, uh, eight nine months ago, yeah, rather than a call for papers. Where we uh, the, the the title of the exhibition is Highland Flotsam. So what we try to do is we bring uh, things with cosmop like material sediments, stuff left behind with cosmopolitan biographies to Munich uh, to an art gallery uh, in in May uh, in order to get, sort of produce a different picture of uh, of of the ways in which these seemingly remote places in the highlands of Asia have inserted themselves in in the in the world at large. That's the three Brilliant. things I'm working on at the moment. Brilliant. Well, it's uh, great to hear from you both that such uh, such rich and uh, fertile uh, projects have, have grown out of, uh, of, of the work that went into this uh, book. Uh, Jen and Martin, thank you both so much uh, for appearing on the show today. It was absolutely great talking to you both. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Ed. And uh, listeners, thanks to you for listening, as ever, uh, to the new book in the new books in East Asian Studies podcast, uh, which is a podcast channel on the New Books Network. We will speak to you next time.